Hello, and welcome to Knoll Country for Old Men. I'm your host, Troy. My pronouns are he. And my name's Ed. My pronouns are they and them. Uh, I don't have a, a snappy intro for this week. Well, that's fine, because this is not a time for snappy intros, for we head to the blasted desert wastelands of Athos and the setting of Dark Sun. What was that? Was that Dune that I heard? If we had, like, a Mad Max musical sting, we'd put it in right here. But we do not, sadly. I'm pretty sure I heard Dune. That's that's what I'm running with. It's Dune, it's Mad Max, it's a post-apocalyptic magic dying Earth setting. It's, uh, pretty metal, actually. Although there's not a lot of metal. We'll get into that. Sorry, Gen Z, this is your future. Yeah, it's the... If they were releasing it right now, it would certainly talk a lot more about the climate apocalypse and what caused that. So look forward to that when they eventually release it for 5th edition, which I think they will. Do it. Do it now. Um, There are some things that they're going to have to work on, that they're going to have to discuss, some controversial elements, but those elements are part of the setting and I think you just need to make a good guy organization that is... directly opposed to them and encourage the players to be part of that. I was going to say, is that controversy racism? Mm, Slavery. Ooh, yeah. Lots and lots of slavery. Uh, Practiced by most of the city-states of the Cable Lands. Uh, Yeah, so, like I said, the best move would probably be to create some sort of good guy, anti-slavery group, and encourage that to be an option for players and just make the forces opposed to it be um more prominent and accessible at least that's my solution but before we really dig into all the nitty-gritty and there's a lot of grit um, i hate sand dark sun we have a segment on this podcast called the week in hobby so ed what have you done this last week in hobby it's been something of a mixed week, uh, still playing Blood Bowl. I managed to win my game against the Skaven, surprisingly 2-0. The opponent just never went for the ball when it was open, and I understand that there is a point to waiting until your very last possible moment before rolling the dice, because Nuffle is a very chaotic god, and uh, you don't want to roll dice if you don't have to, but... They just never picked up the ball, and so I grabbed the ball and then ran with it. And when your elves get the ball and start running with it, there's not a whole lot you can do to get it away from them, especially when you're little squishy rat men. Uh, yeah, so... I've heard the best strategy for dealing with elves is to break them before they can get the ball. Basically, but both times my witch elf just grabbed the ball and she just ran with it and nobody could catch her. And then I think even once I got blitzed, dropped the ball, they didn't pick it up. I just grabbed it on the next turn and kept on running. So I'm like, I don't know what's happening there. They did kill uh, one of my players, though, with the, with their hired troll. So I guess that's something because I have one less lineman, although they don't they don't do much. Uh, still working on Lannisters. I'm still doing my speed paint stuff on the cavalry and it goes a lot faster when it's only four dudes. 
So since there's so few of them and they're kind of a centerpiece of the army, I might spend a little bit more time on them, make them look a little bit more fancy just so that it doesn't look very uh, obvious that they've been speed painted because there's only four guys instead of like 12. But we'll see. We'll see how that goes. I'm just glad for progress to be being made. And then I finished 3 printing my Stargrave Dwarf team. And this is where I would insert the air horn if I had an air horn. Yep. It's been at least a couple of months printing. I think that set came out in July. Yeah, so about two months worth of printing. Um, changing out that FEP film definitely helped. And, you know, as soon as I did that, I got a couple of good prints and that was enough to finish it off. I have had some interesting results with other stuff that I'm trying to print, but they're models that I had just grabbed from the creator and stuck it in there. And when you get STLs that are, quote, pre-supported, that really doesn't mean much because they're probably testing it on their own 3D printer with their own settings and your local conditions are going to be much more important to the success of that model. So if you're doing 3D printing, I'd say give it a run with the pre-supported just to see if it works because sometimes they do. If not, you'll probably have to go in and either add supports or, you know, tinker with the ones they already have there. But once I get the hang of that, hopefully it'll be a lot more success. Saw some discourse relating to uh, a couple of the STL sites getting cease and desists from G-dubs to take down stuff that's uh, Warhammer related or just STL clones of Warhammer models. And I don't, I don't think G-dubs actually knows enough about 3D printing because trying to 3D print an entire army is absolute madness. They're not going to lose any money on that deal. At most, you're going to get a couple of dudes 3D printed because it's like, hey, I like these these models because they look cooler than the ones that G-dubs produces. Or, you know, I want these custom shoulder pads that G-dubs doesn't make anymore, so I'm going to 3D print these, but nobody out there is going to print an entire 2,000 points of, you know, Space Marines because that way lies madness and tears. Yeah, for the moment. And I mean, honestly, if G-Dubs started selling their own STL files, I'd be like, oh, hell yeah. If I could, you know, pay them $9 for an STL of a hero model instead of paying them 40 for one hero model, I'd be all about that. It, but Both of us know that if... G-Dubs was going to sell STL files, they would be more expensive than buying a single model. Maybe. I've seen I've seen some crazy expensive STLs, but I mean they're not as they're still not as expensive as uh fully rigged three models for animation. I've uh done a little bit of that. Those are crazy expensive, but STLs I feel like there is a definite breakpoint of like how big is this model versus how expensive is it going to be. So, if they yeah. did want to do three D printing, I'd be like, you know, definitely they should go for it because there is going to be an audience for it. But I think they're having 
they're having an overblown reaction to the actual scale of the problem. It's like Nintendo taking down ROM sites that host games that nobody sells anymore, not even Nintendo. And Nintendo could literally drop all the ROMs they've ever created onto their Switch storefront. Yeah, no, but, my point is yeah. that Games Workshop is never going to sell reasonably priced STL files because they're going to look at it and go, oh my God, someone could make many copies of this and then we wouldn't make as much money because they made they printed 10 of them. And so they're going to look at it from that perspective immediately. That, yeah, that's the GW brain. Is that, yo, yeah. my God, they could make multiple copies, so we have to charge $200 per STL file in order to guarantee that we're actually making money on this, despite the fact that they could charge $10 per STL file and actually be making money. Yeah, I think if they actually had somebody in their corporate orbit who actually knew what 3D printing is and what it can and cannot do, uh, they would probably be the better for it because there's definitely room in the hobby for both buying space marines and printing custom stuff and even like the stuff that you know they do like made to order things every once in a while where they will take old models and be like you know here these are limited edition buy them now and then the molds are going back into storage until somebody stumbles across them again and says hey let's you know let's make these they could do that. I don't know. Be like, hey, you want a copy of an old model? Here's an STL for it. It's only available for, you know, a week. I don't know. There's, I feel like there's a way to do it, but these companies, they just need to get over themselves with the fact that, oh my God, people are reproducing my work without my consent. It's like, yeah, it's going to happen. People pirate shit all the time. They're never going to stop. You've got to find a way to live with it. Yeah. Anyway, that's my rant on 3D printing, but I'm just glad that, my current 3D print adventure is done because it's been kind of frustrating um, debating whether or not to start a new one immediately, but I'm going on vacation next week, so uh, I'm probably going to have to clean it up and pack it away anyway. And that was my week. Woo! My week. Um... Let me see. I didn't do board games last week, but I had D&D sessions. D&D! Yeah. In uh, one of them, the group went to the city of Greywall in Drome in Everon. And, uh, Drome or Dargoon? Whatever. They went to the city of Greywall, which was supposed to be like a place where they could get some information, buy some supplies before heading off to a dungeon that they've got to delve into to find some ancient weapons that can sever the connection between a fey and the Feywild. Because that the warlock like the, the warlock has had enough of his patron and <laughs> wants to kill them. That sounds extremely dangerous. Yes. I'm, I'm sorry for your warlock. Yes. Well, I mean, I've got some stuff lined up with them, but they want to defeat and, you know, deal with their patron. And in order to do that, they need weapons that can actually, you know, fight an archfey. And I mentioned these ones because the weapons that were forged in this place in the long time ago, at the request of the hags that currently rule the place, 
you know, were able to sever beings from their sources of power on other planes. Just making shit up now. But that's if all they use that is. if they use that on an archfey, then it's just a fey and not an archfey anymore and can be killed. Fun. Essentially. Um they'll have to do a bunch of stuff to actually get that to work, but getting the weapons is this first step of their plan. However, they didn't even get to the first step of their plan because they went to the city, found out that the city had an arena and like daily gladiatorial fights and were immediately like, let's make some money. As betting on player characters are want to do. Um, this did not go as well as they hoped. <laughs> um, I set up multiple arenas and was like, all right, choose a door one through three. Um, and they chose a door and like in individual fights, the warlock chose poorly because he was up against a fire giant, <laughs> a fire giant who acted a lot like Macho Man Randy Savage. Oh, yeah. Um, I don't know if that's just sort of Savage professional does. wrestling style. Like, oh, yeah. I, I love the idea of just throwing pro wrestling into D&D. That sounds amazing. I mean, that's pretty much what was going on there. Um, and then the Warforged cleric ran into a were-tiger with, like, ranger levels who was like, Yes! For the god of the hunt, I will hunt you! And they fought in, like, a death trap arena that had, a, like, spikes and a rotating thing that shot out different elemental damage. Um, and the Warforged cleric actually won that one. Um by virtue of having an incredibly high armor class and the ability to heal himself every turn. He, he was just very hard to damage. Uh, and then he got like, in... just self-mending? Yes, essentially. Nanobot, Warforged? <sighs> Nanomachine, son. Uh, <laughs> and then he got into a second round uh, where he had to fight, where he got a choice between like, oh, do you want to fight human opponents or like monstrous opponents? And he's like, uh, monstrous opponents, please. And had to deal with a sphinx. Yay. Who was more interested in, like, this being a riddle contest than an actual combat contest. And the Warforged was not prepared for a riddle contest and lost that. I feel like in that scenario, I need to, like, go by the grace of the DM and be like, can I roll off for these tests? Because I'm really bad at riddles and puzzles. Oh, yeah, no, um... He was, I, I let him roll an intelligence check, and if he did, I gave him a, like, really strong, strong hint to the riddle. And he rolled two nat 20s in a row on his intelligence checks. Ooh, nice. And then a nat 1. Oh. The dice giveth, the dice taketh away. <laughs> that is true. Uh, my other group, having returned to Sharn, they you know, worked out some information, tried, sort of figured out what they were going to do, got some new equipment and got some stuff sort of made up. Uh, the, one of them had taken some scales from the black dragon they killed and wanted those integrated into their armor, which, uh, going to give them acid resistance, which is quite cool. Nice. And they then descended into the fallen district, which is where a tower was brought down during the war and are hunting for the Rakshasa that's hiding there and has a ancient and powerful artifact that they 
kind of need to destroy or at least contain somehow. Um, and this is the a reoccurring villain that they've dealt with. They found the like gateway to it. They defeated the cultists that were there and sort of entered into the um, ruined dungeon that lies beneath. And that's where they're going to pick up next session. Woo! Uh, and that'll be a lot of fun because I have a whole thing planned out for that. And all sorts of enemies for them to fight because they like to fight. Fight, fight, fight. Yeah, and aside from that, um, I have plans to do board games in person. Woo! Who could that secret person be that we're playing games together with? Who knows? Only but the anyway, nose knows. That's been my weekend hobby. Yay. So the main topic, Dark Sun. Dark Sun was published in 1991 as a second edition campaign setting that, sort of following on from the success of Spelljammer, tried to do something radically different, a post-apocalyptic, dying Earth-style fantasy. Uh, it was inspired by things like Dune, things like Mad Max, and it drew a bit from the old um, Jack Vance fantasy novels, The Dying Earth, which uh, is one of the core components of the original of original Dungeons and Dragons like design because that's where the spell slots and uh, spell levels and everything sort of comes from is those books that were written in like the 40s um, but the setting is you know in far future earth where magic is slowly dying and the world is going to getting terrible Dark Sun takes place on the world of Athas uh, the setting, like I said, came out in second edition and then got mentioned and referenced in third, had a full set of books published for fourth edition in 2010, and since then has been mentioned several times in fifth edition. I kind of expect a fifth edition version in the next couple of years, now that we have Spelljammer. Because Dark Sun is the, like, get weird with it follow-up to Spelljammer. <laughs> Let's get weird! The setting of Athas is that of a sort of ecological collapse, post-apocalypse desert world. Um, it's a little different in that there are no gods, uh, or if there are gods, they have abandoned this world. <laughs> I'm in out. Part, in part due to the fact that divine magic works a little different. Uh, not divine magic, uh, arcane magic works a little differently. You can cast spells as normal, but also you can defile the land and suck life energy and power from living beings in order to fuel spells. That's a concept that definitely doesn't seem like it actually happens in the real world. Definitely not, and you should leave that black goo in the ground and not burn it. Uh... This is one of the main causes of the, like, ecological collapse, is the various sorcerer kings who have warred among themselves and done all sorts of nonsense and pulled power from the world and sort of killed vast areas, leaving them, you know, barren wastelands or silt marshes or, you know, not, not great places to live. Um, and, of course, the world this reflects this the uh the sun is like a just a red star that hangs in the sky and you know 
provides light and heat, but not not in a friendly manner. Uh, and other things are kind of not great. Iron and steel are incredibly scarce. Most weapons and armor are made out of wood, bone, stone, maybe bronze, copper, or other materials. Uh, steel swords are legendary items wielded by the greatest of heroes. <laughs> uh, a metal breastplate might be found in the treasure hoard of the greatest sorcerer kings, but probably nowhere else. I'm seeing a scenario where player characters crash land on Athos as part of a spelljammer campaign and become like living deities just because of all the mundane normal items they have on them. Well, a crash landed spelljammer on Athos would almost certainly immediately spark a war as the various sorcerer kings try to snag it. And the materials that it has. Because, like, despite the fact that they don't have good swords or they don't have, like, metal armor, there's a lot of these people and uh, they have a lot of shit. And also, you know, kind of to, to deal with the fact that their divine magic isn't very good because the gods are gone. And the arcane magic tends to end up murdering everything around it. They have psionics. Um, psychic powers are totally a thing. Uh, that's presumably you deal with that through like feats or, or subclasses or something, uh, in a fifth edition version, but in previous editions, psionics. Um, and also you have the druids who have long been fighting against the desecration, usually unsuccessfully. Go uh, hippies. But they, well, they make a point of murdering arcane casters when they find them. I mean... What are arcane casters, if not fantasy billionaires? Yeah, so you've got druids who try to hunt down that and preserve what nature they can. Um, but again, not it doesn't always work that well. Uh, so in part due to the like difference in setting, the races are also a little different. Uh, you have... I believe this is where the Arakoa come from, the uh, bird people. I didn't know that. That are available in 5th edition as a race. Um, you have Dragonborn, uh, also known as Drey, who are just sort of a, you know, lizard people. Uh, you have dwarves, you have elves. Um, the dwarves tend to be hairless. Weird. For whatever reason. I mean, if it could be, as a person with a very large and glorious beard, um... It can get warm, so maybe all that desert heat just doesn't go well with the beards. Yeah, dwarves tend to be hairless. The elves tend to be, like, tribal and nomadic rather than living in great cities or anything. Their, their civilization, if they had one, collapsed long time ago. I'm sorry, um, I just heard Fremen. Yeah, <laughs> sort of. Um, you've got half-giants and Goli slash goliaths. Um, they were half-giants in 2nd edition and goliaths and all the editions moving forward, because that kind of got... Didn't I thought half-giant was still a thing in 3.5, because I had a half-giant character. It was, but pretty much towards the end of 3.5, and since then, they've just been, removed half-giants as a player option and switched to goliaths. Retconned! Well, in the same way that... You know, they kind of got rid of half-dragons as a player race and switched to Dragonborn. Mm. Um, it, it, it's a... This is the player version of the thing. 
And it makes a lot of sense, actually. Uh, there are half-elves, because you have elves, you might as well, you have half-elves. Uh, half-elves are not in a great position. In other settings, half-elves are like, oh, they're diplomats, they link the human world and the elf world. Uh, in this, half-elves are more like half-orcs. Where nobody likes them. Bro, why you gotta be a racist? Uh, you have halflings. Yes, the greatest race. Yeah, halflings are a little different. Um, halflings are the oldest race of the setting. Like, they were the first civilized people of this world. And their civilization has long since fallen, and they've reverted to barbarian tribes <laughs> living in jungles and wastelands. And, oh, they're all cannibals. Yes, I want, I want barbarian halflings. I love this idea. Cannibal barbarian halflings, yes. Yes. Um, you have mo the mool, which are half-dwarves. Interesting. Uh, half-human, half-dwarves, used a lot of times as, like, a slave race or slave warriors. Because, oh yeah, I mentioned earlier, Not there's interesting. a <laughs> lot of slavery in this setting. Um, and, of course, you have the always fabulous Thrykeen. Yeah. Who are lizard people. Sort of mantis lizard people. They're fun. And they are a excellent choice for a setting that is, uh, well, a... a Blasted Desert. And, you know, Blasted Desert, slightly different races, so slightly different classes. Uh, with no gods, divine magic doesn't work so well. Um, clerics in older editions had, like, s certain clerics weren't just weren't allowed, or your clerics had to get power from a, like, weaker divine source. You couldn't worship a deity straight up because there were no deities. Uh, psionics for everyone. Arcane power for certain people, but it's gonna get you in trouble in some places. Uh, they had, like, a special rules for gladiators as a type of fighter, because there's lots of gladiator arenas. And also some, like, traveling merchant sets that are sort of like barred rogues with the ability to set up, like, merchant, or the ability to set up information networks between the cities. Um, yeah, it's, uh, there's some stuff, uh, I feel like most of the current D&D, uh, classes would work for this, um, the current setting of, the current, uh, class section on, for 5th edition where clerics don't have to draw their divine power from a deity, would sort of make sense. I would certainly bar specific spells, uh, like some of the like divine guidance or the ones where you directly ask your god to intervene. I would get rid of those. Just say those don't work in this setting. I think uh, Artificer could be interesting with the, the change in like materials and technology. That could be a very interesting class to play. Yes, and Artificers would sort of make sense as people who work for the various Sorcerer Kings, because the Sorcerer Kings are constantly seeking to increase their arcane power as they vie with their various rivals. Um, and so there are places here. The, the setting itself has cool places. Um, it's sometimes known as the Tablelands, because it's most of the setting is this, like, large... Uh, I, 
takes place on a sort of like continent-ish sized area of like flat ground ringed by mountains and like the one remaining forest on one side and then on the other side the sea of silt which is a great dust ocean um think quicksand oh, or those boy. craters on the moon that are just filled with dust that if you tried to go in them you just sink straight through because it's super fine and you couldn't walk through it cue that clip of uh, futurama where he falls into the crater exactly um you can sort of sail on it a little bit, but not super well. So there are silt strider trailers, uh, traders that go out there and, you know, do some merchant trade, but no, like, nothing super great. I mean, s sand sailboat sounds pretty bitchin' to me. Yeah, it is pretty cool. Um, so there are seven cities on the tablelands that are kind of the junction of where most stuff happens. And the like central one, the most interesting one, the one that is at the center of most campaigns, is the Free City of Tyr, which was formerly ruled by the sorcerer king Kalak, who was deposed, and uh, this has created something of a power vacuum. Um, he was an evil sorcerer king, a group of, you know, people banded together and, like, fought him and his army and broke its power and wounded him and he fled into the great ziggurat. And, um, yeah, now the city is going through some upheaval. It has a new king who's much more relaxed. Uh, I believe slavery is illegal inside the city. But, like, if you commit crimes in the city, you can be sold into slavery to another kingdom. So slavery still exists. <clears throat> oh, oh, wait, no, I'm thinking of the American legal system. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's a little like that. Shots fired. Yeah, it's a little like that. Um, but it's also probably that you've got more rights there than you do anywhere else. Um, the Great Ziggurat, as I mentioned, is a massive like ziggurat that you know massive step pyramid it's a magical dungeon devised by kalak to drain the life force from the city's inhabitants in order to give him incredible divine power and make him into a demigod does it look like a pump jack um and it is well like i said it's a giant magical dungeon filled with traps and arcane powers and stuff so uh if you want your party to go into a huge giant dungeon and fight some this, like, fight a mortally wounded sorcerer king who is trying to become a demigod at the bottom of it. Free City of Tyr is your place to be. Honestly, I'm actually getting kind of, like, Free City vibes from uh, Game of Thrones, especially with having a magical dungeon ruled by uh, old wizened sorcerers. That's... Did... Did, a. Uh... George Martin, did he just rip that straight from Dark Sun? Who knows? Possible. He ripped stuff from all sorts of places. It's like Picasso said. Good artists borrow, great artists steal. Other places aside from the Free City, you have Balak, the City of Sails, which is a merchant city. Uh, they are located on the shores of the uh, Silt Sea, and so they handle a lot of trade. They are vaguely democratic. In fact, they claim to be entirely democratic. Uh, they are democratic in the same sense that, like, 
Rome just before Caesar showed up was democratic. Yeah, not a not a great kind of democracy you got there. Yeah, not really democracy at all. In fact, they have a dictator who serves a life term. Yeah. He's, he's been dictator for 200 years. And the, like, elected people is just a cycle of electing the same wealthy uh, merchant house representatives over and over. It's uh, it, It's very heavily based on, like, the late Roman Republic. Which is an interesting setup, right? Yep. You, then you have Draj, City of Moons. Uh, it's a lot of military clans ruled by an insane sorcerer king who demands total obedience to his whims. Also blood sacrifices. He demands blood sacrifices. Mm-hmm. Uh, the temples and treasure houses of Draj are protected by the Black Guard a force of ancient and powerful obsidian golems. Which, uh, that sounds like a fun thing to throw at people. Sounds very sharp. Yeah, I imagine they would do a piercing damage when they punch you. Ow. Also be immune to, like, half the damage types in the elemental, like, half the elemental damage types. Heat. Lightning. Heat, Uh... lightning... Acid, probably not going to do much to glass. Uh, depending on the acid. There are some acids that lead through glass, but not many. Yeah, mo- not very common ones. Uh, I would say you'd probably give it damage vulnerability to thunder. Yeah, thunder, maybe bludgeoning. No, because they're golems, so they're immune to non-magical attacks uh, for the most part. Hmm. Yeah, glass, glass is fantastic. Glass is good. Uh... You have Glug, the forest city, uh, ruled by a totalitarian queen with kind of a socialist bent, um, because she's, it's kind of a meritocracy where everything is divided out among the people. Like, uh, people don't starve there. So it's like a dictatorship of the proletariat. Yeah. Um, And she, uh, this sorcerer queen, is adored and feared by the populace in equal measure. She's actually one of the ones that the people of the cities like. Um, It's located in the sole remaining large forest filled with hunters and trackers. And don't ask about the bone grove. Okay, I won't. Because uh, that's, that's where they send you if you commit crimes or if you're... A war criminal or whatever, and uh, oh, so it's a gulag. It's a gulag, except you don't escape even when you die. Oh boy! Yeah, that's where the uh, the queen conducts her experiments. Also, her yeah. palace is in the like built into a giant tree at the center of the city. But cool. you know, that's just because el- elves gonna elf, I guess. Uh, you have Nibine, the city of spires, uh, which is interesting. The king there is reclusive and sort of, there have been rumors of the sorcerer king's death over and over again. Um, but he's, he's still there. He just hides in his spire and he hides in his tower and does magical experiments all the time. And it's a ancient city and a powerful one. And it's filled with decadent nobles and intrigue and all that kind of stuff. And slaves, of course. 
Boo. Burn um, it down. Then you have Rom, the city of unrest, which is having some issues. Uh, it's been plundering the countryside for centuries and the corrupt government and the sorcerer queen is kind of not caring about the city. She's declared herself the grand vizier of a, um, deity that she came, that she made up, I think. Nice. Um, and is demanding that everyone convert to this religion that she invented. Oops. And so there's riots and, uh, lots of, uh, lots of unrest there. And, um, the, everyone is kind of in the process of swearing allegiance to one warlord or another as the city starts to fall apart. Oh boy. Yeah. Not a good place to live. In fact, most of these are not good places to live. And then the last of this seven cities is Uruk, the city of lions. It's a fortress-like city of state known for its military prowess and obsidian mines, and generally the fact that uh, you you it, it's ruled by kind of a wise sorcerer king, where he he knows what he's doing and he takes great care to make sure that everything goes to his plans. Um, even though, you know, yeah, it, it's sort of Mesopotamian themed. Oh, okay. I, I can see that now. Yeah. The, the, they have the code of Hama, Hamanu. That is their like laws and stuff. It's stable. It's well-ordered. It's efficient. They, you know, have a wise king. I don't remember enough about Mesopotamian history from my art classes to make any good jokes there. So continue. Well, it's it's less history and more like Mesopotamian mythology. Um, he's the the sorcerer king. There is kind of Hammurabi slash uh, Gilgamesh rolled to get rolled into one. Gilgamesh, friend of the pod. Yeah, Gilgamesh, friend of the pod. <laughs> yeah, someday and then we got to get him on the show. Uh, I keep asking, and he keeps being like, "No, not until the gods bring back Enkidu." Well, sounds like we got a quest on our hands then. Yeah, he tried that though, and the end result of the quest was, "No, you can't come back to life." Um. Seriously, try again. Uh, yeah, I'm. I, Yes. Um, the sequel. <laughs> yeah, we need a sequel. So, yeah, the Dark Sun has a lot of cool desert wastelands. There's, you know, the Great Ivory Plain, the Salt Marshes, the Salt Mares of Bodash, the Beast Barrens, the Endless Sands, the Great Alluvial Sand Wastes, you know. the uh, There's all sorts of crazy terrifying places and all sorts of crazy terrifying monsters who like i mentioned um there's a lot of weird monsters a lot of insect monsters and such um onkegs probably super common uh 
giant psychic centipedes are mentioned in at least one of the uh, cities, using them as like guard creatures. Uh, oh most, god, it's eating my brain. Yeah, some mind worms, perhaps. Um, most, a lot of the like common animals that you might expect for a fantasy setting are extinct. Uh, there are no horses. I don't think they have cows. Yeah, you you just can't have those in a setting where it's it's all desert all the time. Um, instead, people ride on giant insects or you know sand creatures or whatever. What about kangaroo um, rats? Yeah, kangaroo rats or all sorts of other crazy shit. Uh, it's a very different sort of dark setting. Um, and I definitely enjoy it and am really hoping that they do come out with a 5th edition version because uh, it would be a cool setting, a cool place to set an adventure or a cool place to like have a Spelljammer ship crash land. Just bring everything to 5th edition. I mean, yes. I can't, I can't think of anything that I wouldn't want in 5th edition other than Dragonlance because I just don't care. Yeah, well, sad for you. We're getting Dragonlance. I know. I'm disappointed. I don't care about Pelennor, which is a setting we're never going to talk about in detail. <laughs> um, because it's just like Arthurian mythology setting. Lame. Which we already have plenty of generic fantasy settings that are have Arthurian mythology b baked into them. We don't need a... Um, we don't need a setting dedicated specifically to that. Um, yeah. So that's Dark Sun. It's the darkest of suns. It's the most uh, deserty of settings. It's someplace probably worth playing. And if you're really interested in it, you can probably find the 4th edition books for it at a used bookstore. <laughs> the Cheap. one good thing to come out of 4th edition. Is that the, those books are available and cheap. Yeah, I would say so. Well, okay, there are... Uh, when we go into... When we do a big talk about D&D settings, we will talk about the good things that came out of 4th edition that helped improve 5th edition. Things like short rests. Just, just rest in my eyes. Um, things like, well, Dragonborn and Tiefling being standard issue classes, or standard issue races. Things like the Warlock being a standard class. Um, there are some, there are definitely some things that 4th edition did a good job on and that should be included in future, in modern and future D&D set blah, books. But enough about that. We have a segment on this podcast called Board Game Corner. Woo! And today I'm going to talk about Cartographers. Cartographers is a game I've played it a couple of times. It's a like 30 to 45 minute game for, you know, one to four or five players. You could have more. It's, in fact, you could have it however many players you want, but it's really good around the like three to four players mode. And essentially, it's Tetris. But with the uh, mapping, um, 
The idea is each player is a... You've, you've been sent out to explore the lands and draw maps to earn points. Um, and to do this, you uh, there are a series of goals, like as A, B, C, D, and each one says, okay, you need the largest... You get points if you have a forest over this many things, or a mountain touching an ocean, or houses that do not touch a forest or farms that you know are in a row in an odd row or something and you'll get a certain number of points for these and then you draw a series of cards and each card allows you to draw on a blank on your like blank map a certain shape of a terrain type like you might get one that says oh you can choose either it, it would be like gnome village and you can draw in the shape of a like four line either houses or forest and so you draw a series of these and put these shapes onto your map and then try and earn points um and you do this for four rounds and then at the end whoever has the most points wins um, you can also draw certain cards that cause monsters to spawn on your map. And at that point, you pass the map to the person to your right or to your left, depending on the card, and they draw in where the monster is. And then the monsters affect things and cause you to lose points. Um, it's a fun game. The only issues I have is that it comes with like little pads of paper for this. So eventually you run out. Oh, no. Um, it does come with a lot of sheets, but if you really like it and play it a lot, you're going to run out of the sheets of paper. And also the fact that it's just sheets of paper, so sometimes it can be a little hard to tell what you've drawn if you're not the best artist. Um, personally, I would suggest that maybe you laminate some of them and use, like, colored dry erase markers. Because then that you could, could like use different colors for different things and that would make it a little easier to do but in any case i think it's a fun game and one that's definitely worth trying out it's not super rules heavy because mostly it's just trying to fit stuff onto a thing like in tetris it's visually immediately obvious what you're trying to do it can be hard to come up with the best way to win points especially when you're trying to think about what you're scoring this round and what you're scoring in future rounds. But it's fun and worth playing. Yeah. And that's Board Game Corner. And by extension, that's our show. As always, thank you for listening. This has been Knoll Country. You can find us on Twitter at Knoll Country. You can find us on Instagram at Knoll Country. You can find us on the internet at www.knollcountry.com. Uh, like, subscribe, share, retweet, blog, um, carrier pigeon, carrier pigeon, uh, give us a shout out on your local radio station, uh, add us as one of your top 10 on MySpace. whatever floats your boat. Uh, Ed, anything you want to promote or shout out today? Oh, you can follow me on Instagram at Animadness. See me post uh, whatever I happen to be working on as befits my whims. Go ahead and support 
uh, True Colors United to make sure that all the queer kids have places to go. Support your reproductive justice funds. Uh, support the Ukrainians. Free the Palestinians. Free everybody, basically. And uh, I've got breaking news, and that is Go Knowles. Go Knowles! Woo!